There was this girl who went to a store, I think it was a Dillard's or something like that, some a department store, and bought a new dress for a dance the next night. She looked really pretty, and all the men there wanted to dance with her. She never sat down. She was on the dance floor for every song. But after a while, she started feeling sick and had to leave the dance. The next day, one of her parents came into her room to check on her and found her dead. It turns out that that dress had been purchased by a family to bury their daughter in after she passed away unexpectedly, but the mortician had noticed that the dress still had tags on it and returned it to the store after the funeral and kept the money. The embalming fluid from the dress seeped into the girl's skin when she was sweating at the dance and embalmed her from the outside in. Okay, so I heard, so we're on the bus from my dad to, yeah. to Dallas. Mm -hmm. One time, when I was little, uh, my dad a, ran into a man came out of the restaurant. Yeah, it's just a story. Hello, and welcome to Just a Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam, and we're here to tell you a story. Every week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, and what our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. We want to thank everyone who subscribed to the show and all of our listeners thus far. We also want to encourage you to rate and review so you can continue to grow. Uh, we also wanted to let you know that we are on Twitter at Just a Story Pod. And you can reach out to us there if you have any suggestions for future legends you'd like us to delve into a little more deeply, or just want to say hi. Yeah, that's great. We'd love to hear what your favorite urban legends are. You know, we're starting with some of the classics and some of our favorites, and today's is a really fun one. It's the Poison Dress Story. Interesting, this is one of the oldest urban legends in the United States. Right, this and Buried Alive are two of the very first documented folk tales of the United States. I actually studied folklore and have a huge interest in it, and could probably talk about Alan Dundee's and Jan Bravan ad nauseum, but I'm not going to do that to you. We're not going to talk about tale types today. We're just going to look briefly at some of the origins dating back to antiquity that accompany this poison dress story. The first recorded mention of the poison dress was actually in the play Medea by Euripides. Medea? Not Tyler Perry, Medea. I know. I'm sure Tyler Perry would have done an excellent job portraying the character, but unfortunately, he was not around at that time. Oh, I know, oh, I know one. Hmm. Hercules. Yes, Hercules was killed by poison robes, and King Arthur was not killed by poison robes, but his half-sister Morgan Le Fay. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's uh, not the nicest of ladies. And she kind of had this like lifelong grudge match with King Arthur. And she sent him a mantle that was poisoned and meant to kill him and like spontaneously burst into flames and cause him to burn alive. But he didn't die that way, so all good. Also, there are Indian stories of killer kalits, which were robes of honor laced with poison. So those are some of the more classical versions of this story. Also, there are rumors in a Queen Elizabeth court that someone, the first, not the second, there were rumors in her court that there were going to be poison garments sent to her and people were upset about checking all of the gifts she received, especially gloves. They were very concerned about gloves and this was dramatized several times incorrectly on film and one of her ladies-in-waiting is always shown dying in the dress that was meant to poison the queen. Whatever, that didn't happen. But it's fun to talk about. I, actually, I don't think any of this actually happened, so... Well, we always start with, did this happen in the 
this happen? Well, did it? What? Did somebody buy a dress from a dead girl and get poisoned? That's a great question. Uh, I don't think so. We couldn't find any specific stories that fit this. Right, they all seem very much like legend. Like, I heard, I saw, I read about, I heard it said, even though, like, in some of the earlier printings of the story in newspapers, etc., there were usually specific department stores named that the girl would buy the dress from, and a lot of people speculate that those were attempts to discredit the competition made by other department stores in the area. But like we mentioned in the past, saying a store's name, saying a person's name... Right, it lends credibility to your story. Uh, it makes it real. Oh no, you know the J.C. is down the road. Oh, the one by so-and-so's house? Yeah, don't buy anything from there. Oh no, I would okay. never. Yeah, or don't eat at this place because my friend found a rat at KFC that was fried. Was it tasty? Uh, <laughs> probably tasted about the same as their food. Probably so. We're Popeye's people. So, in the story, the agent of this girl's demise is the embalming fluid that was on the dress. And so that would have been, what, formaldehyde? Right, formaldehyde is one of the main chemicals used in preserving dead bodies. And it smells terrible. Yes, it made our washing machine smell terrible, too. Like, everything we washed in our washing machine your first year of med school smelled like formaldehyde. At least to me, I was probably imagining it. It was, it was awful. But formaldehyde is extremely poisonous. It's not something you want to come in contact. If you were to come in contact through inhalation or direct exposure, it cause a lot of problems. So inhaling it would cause breathing problems, pneumonitis, which is like lung inflammation. You know, something that's very commonly seen in industrial sites is skin irritation, like a dermatitis you would get from it. And you also get headaches through that inhalation. If you were to swallow it, it would burn your esophagus and your stomach. So I wouldn't go around drinking and bombing. I'll do my best. You know, one thing I just thought of is there was a trend recently where people were dipping cigarettes and joints into embalming. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And they were called coffin nails. It would supposedly give you some sort of psychotropic effect along with it. Have I you think, tried it? Yeah, I, I haven't either. I think that that may just be like the badassery of it. Sounds really hardcore. Hey man, you want to try this hit of this coffin nail? You shouldn't offer fake drugs to people. Just say no. <laughs> just say no. <laughs> Ms. Reagan would be happy. So if you were to get an extreme amount of this, it would cause you know, hypertension, cause your heart to beat irregularly, regular breathing, and could eventually cause you to go unconscious, coma, and death if you were to have enough of it. So this is like huffing the stuff every day through your entire first year of medical school. Well, there was one girl that was pregnant in the class below me, and she had to wear this giant respirator. She had like, what, 70 extra pounds of baby and apparatus? Wild Dissecting. While dissecting yeah. a dead body. Yeah. That sounds like so much fun. I'm so sad I didn't go to medical school. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. thing is, could this happen? Could she have been exposed this through a dress? I think the most likely thing that could have happened, if someone were to wear a formaldehyde-soaked dress overnight, let's just say this would happen. Which, first of all, why would the dress be soaked in formaldehyde? That doesn't even make any sense. But, okay. But you would get kind of a mild irritation, like a dermatitis in the skin. So we're talking a little rash. So the, again, maybe a bad rash. Maybe a bad rash. So somewhere between, oh no, my porcelain skin has become a little irritated, and she died. There's a little room for gray area. 
Well, like we were talking about, the smell is just terrible. And at just 0.5 parts per million, you can have smell that distinct smell. That mild kind of dermatitis occurs at six times that amount. At even more than that, so at 10 parts per million, is when you start being able to not breathe, have that lung irritation, that's the kind that starts to cause problems. But then at 50 parts per million, so that is 100 times more than when you can start to smell that distinct formaldehyde smell. That's when you get that pulmonary edema of the lung swelling that's the kind of things that could kill you so you have to be exposed to a vast amount of it so the thought that this lady is lovely and no one notices and she looks so radiant and every man in the room is asking her to dance there's no seems way. unlikely there's, there's no way that guys would be falling all over a girl that smelled like dead body there have been people that have died and had really bad reactions from formaldehyde these are all industrial workers in 2007 he had nine people who had life endangering reactions and two did die from exposure. You know, in some third world countries, other countries, they treat fruit, veggies, fish with formaldehyde to keep them looking fresh. How nice and so of that's them. A way, and so that's a way to get a lot of exposure from, you know, trying to eat a nice healthy diet of fruits, fruits veggies, and veggies, and fish, fish and right. formaldehyde. Mm. And formaldehyde with a side, an amuse-bouche of formaldehyde. A sous-son. So we can cross formaldehyde off the list of possible suspects of poisons that could be used to treat a garment and kill a ravishing young lady with some degree of certainty. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, I agree. Okay, so my next suspect, my next conjecture. Evil chemical. Is arsenic. Arsenic. This is what is often called the inheritance powder a few centuries ago. Yeah, arsenic was actually a very, very popular poisoning uh, agent during the Victorian era. There were a lot of cases of women using it. Housemaids and nurses and housewives. There was a case in Europe where tw something like 26 women killed loved ones using arsenic extracted from flypaper. Well, it was used in the Medici court as well. Well, lots of things were used in the Medici court. You know, those poison rings. Very popular among the Renaissance felt fair crowd. I had a poison ring. I wore it in my pinky because I was a badass. You are a badass. <laughs> I wonder what happened to it. Someone was poisoned. Had to get rid of the evidence. So arsenic was a popular poison during the Victorian times, but it was also a popular shade of green. During this time, synthetic dyes were sort of accidentally discovered. There was a man named Perkin who was a chemistry student, and he was told to go and synthesize some quinine and failed, but in doing so, discovered a chemical reaction that produced this glorious purple color that was later called movine. And so this was used to dye garments in big vats during the Industrial Revolution. When clothes could be produced more quickly, they needed to be produced all the way through, and that included dyeing. And so people started looking to synthetics and chemicals to dye dresses, and one of the dyes that gave them this vibrant hue was arsenic. And so this color called Shields Green became very, very popular. Right, which is like an emerald green. Very thickly saturated. Cans and vats of the dye were marked poison. Just tell you something. Right. So ladies would wear this color and people suspected that they were all going to die and it was like there was a lot of chastening of these women. Perceived it as great vanity to sacrifice one's well-being for beauty and so women would wear dresses laced with arsenic, dyed with arsenic. I suspect some of them died from it. What do you think? I would, I would assume so. Dress soaked in arsenic that can't be good for you. Well, you're the doctor. You tell me. Well, if you want to know, 
With arsenic, really the best way to kind of get a poison from arsenic is ingestion. Right, which is why it was called the inheritance powder, because you'd, like, sprinkle it on someone's oatmeal every day. I wouldn't sprinkle it on oatmeal, because it has a... Well, sometimes it can be odorless, but in some forms can have a garlic-like smell to it. So you put it with a little cream cheese and smear it on a bagel and feed it to pops. That was in a CSI episode. Yes, it would. But so that seems effective. <coughs> Anything with a little garlic. I can't believe it was popular in England. <laughs> so... Could you die from wearing a dress that's been soaked in arsenic? No, you think you'd have to ingest the poison to die from it. Right, I would think so. I have a really high exposure to it. Like factory workers? That seems about right. Well, there was a 19-year-old woman who made silk flowers and used the dye frequently and did die of arsenic poisoning during the height of this trend, and that was like the 1860s. That's probably the most fatal case of fashion items. These were used on hats and things at the time, so fashion killing by arsenic. Arsenic was also used to treat wallpaper, and the story, The Yellow Wallpaper... The Yellow Wallpaper is a great short story that was published in 1892 by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And it's about a woman who is losing her mind, and her husband sends her away. And she has, like, hysteria. She begins to see things, like women creeping around in the wallpaper, and scratches all the wallpaper off the walls. And It's in first person. It's creepy as hell. So good. So Pause. good. Go read it. It's like 6,000 words. You can do it. Did you do it? I knew you could. Alright, thanks. Good job. Now you're up to speed. Let's keep going. But anyway, she talks about the smell, and I'm guessing it's garlicky, and that bothers her, as well as the women creeping behind the images and the patterns in the wallpaper. So, wallpaper was treated with arsenic, so people had that kind of exposure. Again, they're probably not eating the wallpaper. This woman might have been average Jane, probably not. There's some stipulation this exposure to arsenic could have led to like heart problems, vascular problems, cancer. But not death in an hour. No, probably not. You know, it was used medicinally, too. Yes, complexion tablets were a big thing. and I guess that was kind of cosmetic. Yeah, it is a kind of cosmetic thing. Complexion tablets with non-lethal doses of arsenic were, were used marketed to women at that time, as well as arsenic soap. And they were used to whiten their faces. So other than whitening faces, another popular um, pastime Victorian era was trying to treat syphilis. That's what you did. You played charades, you did a little seance, and you treated syphilis. The French disease. All in a day's work. So one medicine that was used was arsenic. And it was also used in lots of patent medicines, mm -hmm. which are your tonics. Snake oil. Yes. Which, it just sounds nasty. Which is just your doctor huffing stuff to try to sell you his tonic, which is mostly alcohol, morphine, and a few things to make it smell. To make you feel great. I'm sure it did. I need to find Dr. Huff and stuff, because I could tell you I could use some alcohol and morphine to make it through my day. Okay, so it was in snake oil. It was in wallpaper. It was in syphilis medication. It was in complexion tablets. It was in soap. It was in dye. It was also in chemicals used to treat paper. One boy, because you know, boys, kids, children, put everything in their mouth. So one such child found a green ticket, not a golden ticket, but a green ticket, picked it up, chewed on it, ingested the arsenic, and died. So if one were to be poisoned by arsenic, they would have symptoms like headache, really bad diarrhea, confusion, could lead to coma and death. It looked a lot like cholera, which was very prevalent centuries ago. And one of the reasons people never knew that they were 
poison with arsenic because they were just like, oh, she died of cholera. So, like, Oregon Trail disease of immortal infamy from fifth grade and arsenic are basically presenting the same way in people? It is just like, you basically just have diarrhea until you die. Okay, so you died of arsenic poisoning would be on the little tombstones on the way to Oregon Trail. Yes, and you would die. So that's arsenic. So again, probably not the culprit if we are lacing a dress with poison. Well, another thing I couldn't help but think of is mercury. The so, planet? Uh, no, not the planet. Sorry. The uh, god? No, not the god. The element? The element, exactly. Mercury nitrate is what is implicated in the Mad Hatter's disease. That's a thing? It's a real thing. Like Mad before Alice? Like before the Tim Burton movie. Before Johnny Depp. I know before Johnny Depp. I'm aware of Lewis Carroll, okay? So, with the Mad Hatter's disease. But before that, too. Even before that, yeah. Mercury was used by the Greeks. Were they called Mad Hatters before that? Yes. That preceded it. The, the idea of the Mad Hatter preceded Lewis Carroll's character, the Mad Hatter. No, yes, definitely. Got the idea. One of the many inspirations for the Mad Hatter, which it was more than just he did get inspiration from a particular person in his life. Mad Hatter's had been around for centuries. Mercury had been used for millennia. It was used by the Greeks. What were um, the Greeks doing with it? Using it for medicinal purposes. Okay. But they also noted that it was toxic. Oh. Good old Pliny. Pliny the Elder. He discussed its medicinal uses and its toxic effects. We also had Chinese emperor, I'm going to butcher this, Qin Shi Huang, and he died of mercury poisoning. He took it because it was going to make him immortal. How'd that go for him? Uh, he died. So, quickly disproved his hypothesis. Yes. And then mercury was used to treat the French disease syphilis as well. They just, like, went through the whole periodic table and, like, I don't know, let's stick them with this. Well, if you took something that was extremely caustic, like arsenic or mercury, and put it on a syphilitic lesion, it would kill it. Because it would burn because it magic. off. Because magic. It would burn it off. Magic. Yes. Okay. And one of my favorite quotes I saw is there was a saying, a night in the arms of Venus leads to a lifetime on Mercury. Oh, that's like a triple entendre. I want to high five whoever said that. Mercury was also used as one of the elements for alchemy, try to turn it into gold. And of course, a quicksilver used in like mercury baths and reflection pools and plenty of uh, royalty used it and play with it. It does like weird stuff. Right, it's kind of like a liquid-like metal, and it's very, very dense. In theory, you could walk on it if you were careful enough, because it was so heavy, you could walk on liquid mercury. So is that what Jesus did? I don't think so. Okay. But back to the Mad Hatters. You know, it started in 17th century France. Uh, the Huguenots, which were French Calvinists, first people to use it. And it eventually spread to France and Europe. To use it for what? For hatting. Of course. So Haberdashery. What they used it for was to make the felt. They take all the actual fur off of a hide and then combine it together to make felt using mercury. Okay, so this is like during the beaver hat, top hat craze. It spread throughout France, spread to the United States. In 1869, the French National Academy of Medicine put out that this that they should not be using mercury, that it was very toxic, and people just kind of ignored it. And there was another physician in New Jersey. And Someone his, in New Jersey was ahead of the curve? Believe Crazy. it or not. Addison Freeman described it, saying you know, there was a need for ventilation in these places that were making felt. But again, people just kind of ignored it. 
And another study by Dr. Dennis for the Essex County Medical Society found that 20% of the Hatter surveyed had what had been come to known as the Hatter shakes. Is that like the hippie hippie shakes? No, no there was no good song about it. Hmm. So eventually, First France passed legislation to kind of try to prevent this from happening. And in 1943, the U.S. Public Health Service was finding that 80% of felt makers and hat makers had mercurial tremors. Is that like Parkinson's? It's a lot like Parkinson's. Okay. And so it can be described similar to Parkinson's, also similar to Corsica's dementia, which is something that now is seen in like alcoholics related to thiamine deficiency. And they get this like anterograde and retrograde amnesia, and they get aphasia, apraxia, gross deficits of executive function. They have intention tremors. What's an intention tremor? So it's like a tremor whenever you're trying to do something, the, intent, the tremor is worse. Right. So if you're reaching out to grab my glass of wine, as I'm doing now, mm -hmm. my tremor would be much worse while I'm doing something instead of being stuck. Okay. And so the technical term for this is arethism. And it, it became a huge problem, huge problem, because 80% of people looked at by the U.S. Public Health Service in 43 had these tremors. And there were alternatives to the mercurial curing of the furs to make felt, and the industry just would not adopt it. And a lot of people say that it stopped uh, really due to World War II, for the need for mercury for the war effort. So it was around the 40s that they adopted the hydrochloric-based solution to make this film. Okay, well, listening to the symptoms you've listed, it's easy to see why people would think they were mad. Aphasia is meaning to say one word and saying another word, correct? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they're saying nonsense, they're shaking when they go to do things. When your executive function, that can be altered. Executive function is like your decision-making. The outside looking in, they would seem mad as a hatter, I guess. Exactly. So we've talked talked about lots of different chemicals that can cause poisoning that were used in the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. But we don't really have any cases of a poisoned garment causing a death. No. But so let's, let's kind of go back to the story. Let's talk about some origins of this story. Where did it come from? How has it changed over time? My favorite version of the story that I found when I was doing research was printed in New York City in 1945. And in that version of the story, the girl who purchases the dress is from a lower echelon of society and can't afford a dress to go to the ball. So she kind of Cinderella. There's an important distinction between this girl and Cinderella. Cinderella in classical text and folk tales is a disenfranchised noblewoman who has a right to be at this ball. This girl does not. This is before the up by your bootstraps America story really takes hold when we're still suspicious of people with upward mobility. Alright, because this is around World War II. Mm -hmm. It was really after World War II that that truly, truly took place. Right, the middle class was sort of invented by World War II. And that didn't happen yet, so there's still a large divide between the rich and the poor. And this girl was on the poorer side. Her friend advises her to go to a pawn shop and rent a costume to go to the ball. So she's there as an imposter. And she looks ravishing. She causes a quite quite a stir when she appears at the ball and young gentlemen ask her to dance continuously all night. She doesn't have any chance to rest. Even um, though she might smell terrible. She starts feeling faint and has to retire and is very sad because there were still so many eligible men to dance with. Did she get the vapors? I think she did. 
And I think there's a fainting couch and the vapors and the whole nine. Of course, this was the vapors of formaldehyde. Right, yeah. She goes to her room, and she's in her room, and she hears a voice say, Give back the dress. It is the dress of the dead. Oh, so there's a ghost in the story. There's a ghost in the story, which, wait for it, it gets better. So, she dies, yet we still know about the ghost. Not sure how. I guess she left a note. BT dubs. Ghost came, said this. If anything should happen to me, look for the ethereal spirit. Anyway, she dies because her pores were open from all the sweating, from all the dancing, and the formaldehyde was able to seep into her body, and she dies. So, in this version of the story, she's faking it. She's a poser. She's an imposter. And this agitated people. The idea that someone could pretend to be someone they were not. And that theme is continued in other versions of the story in which the first dress, the initial owner of the garment, is a black girl, if you can believe that, who goes to a nice, reputable department store and buys a dress to elevate her status. Scandalous. Scandalous. And then she dies. But her sins, her transgressions are so great that they go on to punish an innocent white girl who buys the dress because she was masquerading as something she was not. So not only did she harm herself, but she harmed society in general. Yes. Terrible. Terrible. And in these stories, this outsider status and this lower classness of these women or death itself sort of acts like a spontaneous contagion. You can catch being an outsider. You can catch being dead just by touching an object. And so there's sort of a magical thinking that goes with it, with this particular version of the story. It seems to me that this is a kind of an overreaction to someone just wearing a dress, trying to elevate themselves in society, trying to just attend a ball that was above their social status. Well, there's a theory produced by a psychologist named Zahavi. It was first put forward in 1975 called the Handicap Principle. And it states that ornamentation used to attract the opposite sex functions by indicating that the individual is very fit in order to support this ornament. Otherwise, it would be a handicap. So this fits into your evolutionary fitness. Yes. In order to be able to mate and pass on your genes, mm -hmm. you have to have this to be able to attract your mate, and you have to be able to support it. Right. So, like, the example that comes to mind for me, and in a, a, a lot of writing on this phenomena, is the peacock's tail. So... When we look at the peacock's tail, it requires a great deal of metabolic energy. It would be very risky to have a tail like that if you weren't a very fit individual because it could attract predators and make it difficult to escape. It indicates that you have a lot of time to groom yourself. So by having this fantastic tail, you're saying, I'm such a stud of the peacock world that I can not only do everything I need to survive, I can grow this fabulous plumage. Looking good. Looking good. Check out that tail. Let's think about the peacock's tail as a beautiful dress. The rich can afford the beautiful dress because they are so fit that they have time to not only do everything they need to survive, but to procure these items and afford them. Their time and resources exceeds what they need in such a way that they can go and purchase a ridiculously fancy dress. Right, they can have that excess. Yes. But when a person who is not as fit as them, who does not have the disposable income to go and find this dress and purchase it, wears it anyway, it presents a kink in the evolutionary plan. They're getting something that they didn't earn. This anger at pretenders and imposters could be a very instinctual process. 
It really is. You know, we've always split ourselves into groups mm-hmm. from the beginnings of mankind. And we've always built our own rituals, our own religion, society, culture, and that keeps that group together. That's the binding uh, glue between a group. And the outsiders, the other groups, are the people that do not share the culture that you have. Right, and it's not even an outside culture, necessarily. There's a lot of anger with people trying to co-op your culture. But I think it still fits in with it, though. Yeah, I mean... This this is what makes you you. This is what connects you with your people. And, you, you know, someone else does not have that right, in theory, to come in to your group and co-opt ideas and recipes. I mean, how many times have we gone out and seen gumbo on a menu? And I've, you... gone, I've gone out for gumbo zero times. I know. You, I've never seen you order it in a restaurant. I've never ordered it in a restaurant. See, we're elitist. You know, like, we're like, they don't know. They just don't even know. And we get angry about it. But beyond gumbo, I think that this is sort of a pervasive phenomenon still, especially in countercultures. Like, the goth culture, or the skate culture, punk culture, surf culture actually is a big one. But these groups that form and mark themselves as outsiders and feel disenfranchised in some way get very angry when people come in and try to hone in on that territory without having earned it. Right, they're not a true part of that group. Yes. And, like, when I was thinking about this for this episode, the first thing that came to mind was, like, actually hip-hop culture. Hip-hop kind of came out of this subculture where everyday life was very difficult to navigate. There was a lot of violence. It was harder to make it. It was just a tough road to hope. Are you going to start rapping? Oh, my God, I wish I could, but I really... I'm going to need so much more wine. He's giving me more wine. I'm really not rapping. Tough row to hoe. Do you see how much I know about rap culture? I've already used a folksy, backwoods, rural, south metaphor. And so they created this culture that elevated members of the society who were able to thrive in this environment. They developed their own brand of machismo and the implements for achieving success, even just... though they stepped outside of like socially approved norms in a mainstream sense, were focused upon and celebrated. Well, this fits in with they're the most fit person, they're the most successful person mm-hmm. in a difficult environment, and they're showing it. Right, so they're showcasing their adaptations, very effectively communicating their success in their environment. They are products of their environment, and they are fit. And then, from the outside, you have people who begin co-opting this culture, and they begin displaying markers for fitness in the environment that the original members came from without earning it. Right, and this is why you always have reps about people being posers and fakes and... Baby gangsters is one of my favorites. So, Easy e real motherfucking G, that's... Anyway, that... There's, like, a line about these baby gangsters, and they're just pretending they've never even been on the street. He says he's gonna shoot them. When I believe him, he sounds really angry. You have, like, Drake. Right? He we'll... says he started from the bottom. Oh, is Degrassi the bottom? Because I didn't know that. I'm sorry. I'm like, no. Being shot by Rick on Degrassi is not the hard knock life wheelchair Jimmy. No. Oh, wheelchair Jimmy started from the bottom. He was shot. As 
It's gangsta. I somehow don't think that being on, like, the Canadian equivalent of the after-school special... If you were a child star in Canada, which I don't even think has mean streets, maybe two... They have, like, slightly disgruntled streets. Slightly disgruntled. Yes, exactly. With free healthcare. See? See how incredulous and, like, aggravated I am, and I'm not even part of that culture? I can't imagine if I was, and how... Yes, I can, because I do it with people who say their country, and that just irritates me to no end. So, essentially, the people who come in and say, I started from the bottom... Started from the streets. Started from the streets, and they didn't. They are essentially showing you their peacock tail implant. So, speaking of tail implants, I do think there are plenty of cases of deaths related to the pursuit of beauty. You know, people having surgeries, tattoos, you know, other to- sorts of... Body cousin, augmentation? Yeah, where it leads to death. And you know, the one I it's think... Like that, when you said that, all I could think about are these commercials where it's like, make us sneezing, loss of eyebrows, or death. And the nice little voice when they're like playing at the Ferris wheel. So I do think of a recent uh, medical case of a woman who died after trying to do butt injections. Like get shots in her butt? Shots in her butt to give her booty. Wait, no, like, not medicine? No. What was she having injected into her butt? Silicone. Why? To have a booty. Well, this woman's Natisha Lee. She's Mm -hmm. 44, and she was wanted on charges of first-degree involuntary manslaughter and was arrested in St. Louis by the St. Louis police. Natisha Lee is the woman who got the implants? No, she's the one that gave the implants, which implant is kind of a misnomer. It's an injection. But she had injected silicone into Miss Daisha Phillips, a 22-year-old exotic dancer. Where did she dance, you might ask? Oh, my God, I hope it's a pun. Is it a pun? It's the pink slip. Oh, no, it's the best pun. Okay, okay. In Brooklyn, Illinois. So after giving the injections... I mean, it hit a vein and caused her to die. Where did Miss Daisha find Miss Naisha? Was she working at the Pink Slip too, or? So she had a beauty salon. She regularly did this. She previously regularly did this. How much of a demand is there for like low end? Bottom priced, <laughs> bottom injections. Low end, bottom priced. I'm sorry. I'm not even trying. Bargain butt implants. Well, in this article from. The Dallas News. Uh, it said that more women are seeking buttock enhancement procedures than ever. Mm. And plenty are undergoing unlicensed procedures. Because the actual procedure would be like a fat implant. But they get the fat? Different places. Like from other parts of their body? Yeah. yeah. yeah? From that person. So, and like, so, when women say, like, oh my god, I wish they could just take all the fat from my thighs and inject it in my boobs or whatever, they actually do that? In your ass. So that kind of procedure would cost several thousand dollars. Like 13000 I think, right? Right. And, but this procedure just cost you a few hundred bucks. But oh. this procedure, like I was saying, is not an FDA-approved procedure. You cannot go into your local plastic surgeon and get silicone butt injections. No one is legally doing that either. Okay, so this is the equivalent of someone like saying they can do tattooed makeup and doing it with a needle and not doing it with a tattoo gun. Well, there are cases of people doing um, home tattoos and it not Stick being... Stick and pokes. Right, and not being done properly. Because if you go to a licensed tattoo parlor, if you've ever had tattoos done, as we have, they're extremely clean. 
Mm-hmm. The whole place should sparkle. You should see them open the needle up. There's very, very little risk of infection. But there are plenty of cases of home tattoos being done in unlicensed places that lead to really serious infections, sepsis, and death. There are plenty of examples where you do have death from seeking beauty and status. Yeah. Trying to reach what society says is beautiful. But it's just a story, right? Yeah. It's just a story.